Brian Nichols, you're a great man with some great ideas, a great podcast. Do you see why he's my favorite libertarian people? <laughs> yes. He's full of common sense and wisdom. Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show. Welcome to The Brian Nichols Show, your source for common sense politics on the We Are Libertarians Network. Today I'm joined by easily one of the best of the best, Matt Kibbe. Welcome to The Brian Nichols Show. Hey, Brian. It's good to be with you. By the way, let me take a step back and say I love what you're doing. I love the conversational style, and it's a combination of good fun and serious ideas. I love the fact that your show's doing what it does, and, and this is how we win the future. The Brian Nichols Show is the fastest-growing liberty podcast that brings together people from all means of political thought as we seek to have meaningful conversations about the issues you care about. There's so many things that we can do to make America freer and the world better and safer and more peaceful. Everybody has the responsibility of trying to help to do that. You know, what you're doing with your podcast is a perfect example of, you know, you're doing this as a labor of love and for the cause, and that is exactly what we have to have. At The Brian Nichols Show, our goal is to leave the audience educated, enlightened, and informed. And now your host, Brian Nichols. Hey, what's up, folks? It's Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show. Thanks for joining us today on, yes, another fun-filled episode of The Brian Nichols Show. Now, guys, hopefully you enjoyed last week's episode where I joined Keaton Tucker over on his podcast, Freedom Strips. Got the chance to uh, discuss capitalism, AOC, you know, everybody's favorite topics to discuss. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but with that, uh, today we are joined by Jose Nino. Now, Jose is easily one of uh, if not the best uh, individuals I've spoken to when it comes to discussing your Second Amendment rights. So Jose is the author of a book, Top 10 Gun Control Myths. Uh, so with that, I asked Jose to come on the show today to discuss what he considers to be the top gun control myths and uh, really to explain uh, how you as the listeners of The Brian Nichols Show can overcome those objections and arguments and really the myths that are raised up by the the left and those in the mainstream media. Uh, so, again, what's the goal of the Brian Nichols Show? Educate, enlighten, and inform. Hopefully, you walk away from today's episode feeling that you, uh, yes, we're indeed educated, enlightened, and informed. But also, I also have a chance to discuss uh, Jose's home, which is that of Venezuela's. And uh, obviously, if you're if you're a fan of the Brian Nichols Show and you've been listening for a while, you, you heard when I had Hillary Andalus Aguilar on my show to discuss, yes, the very real tragedy that is taking place in Venezuela. Uh, but with that, there's been a discussion as to what the United States, what we as a society can do to help our brothers and sisters down in Venezuela. And one of the proposals that, yes, has been raised up by those both on the left and the right has been that of U.S. intervention. So uh, with that, Jose joins the Brian Nichols show today to also discuss why he says, no, that's not the right approach and then offers his solution as to what can be done to help the uh, the people of Venezuela. So with that, folks. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a second and give us a, a rate and review over on iTunes. Uh, if you could, go out of your way, share with family and friends. Uh, but also, if you could go over and financially support us over on Patreon, uh, it's The Brian Nichols Show, or you can do that one-time PayPal donation. And the email address for that is Show at gmail.com. So, folks, with that, on to the show. Jose Nino here on The Brian Nichols Show. Thank you for having me on, Brian. Absolutely. Well, listen, I'm looking forward to have you on today because um, obviously you're bringing a lot to the table, especially with your work you've done there at uh, Ammo.com, um, also over at Big League Politics, Gunpowder Magazine, Mises. Um, but also you've got a lot of your great works uh, you know, sh uh, shared both in Business Insider, 
uh, Infowars, Zero Hedge, you've been on Tom Woods, Dana Lausch's show, Relentless. So to my audience, maybe who is not aware of your role in politics and your, obviously your, your focused commentary, and I'm assuming they can guess by your works that it's going to be more focused towards gun rights, Second Amendment issues. So if you could, Jose, introduce yourself to my audience and kind of how you got to where you are in politics, but also where you are in your uh, professional political career. Well, I was originally born in Venice. I was relatively young, like in the late 1990s. And the way I got into politics was through the Ron Paul campaign in 2007. And from that point, I was very involved with certain groups at the university level, like Students for Liberty and Young Americans for Liberty. I took a brief hiatus from politics uh, like after 2012, but I got back in the game through the National Association for Gun Rights. I worked there for a bit as a copywriter and lobbyist, and that's how I really came to enjoy the issue of gun rights and write about it. Nowadays, I work as a freelance writer. I write for various sites such as ammo.com and Mises.org and Big League Politics as well. My main focus, among other things, are gun rights, state and local politics, and in general, political decentralization. Gotcha. And obviously, that's one of the main reasons I want to have you in the show today, referring to your work in the Second Amendment area. Um, so you have a new book out called Den- uh, Ten Myths of Gun Control. So let's, uh, let's start off kind of what was the uh, main focus on writing that book? And uh, kind of what, uh, what's been the reception from uh, your, your work there with uh, the book, again, 10 Myths of Gun Control? Well, I wanted to bring things back to basics, especially on gun policy, which has received a lot of coverage over the past few years. It's an issue that's always evergreen, and that's also filled with a lot of short-term outrage, especially after mass meetings. And... In these types of circumstances, you hear tons of media misinformation, half-truths, and outright myths on gun control. So I felt very motivated to build up this book that has very very basic myths so that people can not only get knowledgeable on the issue, but get motivated to take their knowledge and apply it, whether it be like in a journalistic endeavor, blogging, or even as a lobbyist or grassroots activist, because I do see this issue as a winning issue at the state and local level. And I believe it does have momentum. And that actually is a good way that um, allows libertarians to position themselves as relevant political uh, figures in today's political arena. Yeah, so let's, um, let's talk about gun control in general, because it seems to be that the libertarian, conservative, Republican alliance can really uh, be found with the uh, positions on gun rights, obviously in favor of the Second Amendment. So uh, you, you kind of touched on this. Have you found that gun control discussions from a more pro-gun, uh, pro-individual Second Amendment rights, and the right, obviously, of self-preservation, has that been one of the areas where you know, you've know you had success reaching out to people within those Republican and, and conservative spheres of influence and actually being able to have that be kind of like the entryway into discussing more greater libertarian um, your libertarian policies and principles, but also kind of showing our, our conservative and, and Republican brothers and sisters maybe a little bit where uh, we disagree in policy, but giving them an idea of, you know, hey, this is what libertarians actually believe. And then maybe, I don't know if you've experienced it anecdotally, but actually changing hearts and minds. Well, there is overlap between libertarians and conservatives 
on this issue. But um, I also wrote this book as well to kind of get conservatives to take the issue of gun rights to its logical conclusion, which is that all forms of gun control, be it federal or even like state and local gun control, are all infringements on the Second Amendment. And that means the gun control bureaucracy, which unfortunately a lot of establishment pro-gun lobbies and legacy conservative institutions have kind of accepted and i believe this type of status quo is unacceptable and i think that this issue of gun rights is a good way for libertarians to get into these orgs or build parallel orgs that can shift the discussion towards the more absolutist libertarian position that any law-abiding individual should be allowed to carry own a firearm without having to beg the government for permission and that um the Second Amendment is ultimately a human right that is not granted to us by the government and that is inherent of any free individual because a disarmed nation is no longer a nation of citizens. It is a nation of subjects that are at the whims of criminals and the ultimate criminals, um, tyrants in government. And we're obviously seeing that pretty much, you know, anywhere that citizens have given up their guns, um, almost, you know, within you know, the next generation, you're going to have governments that take over that are oppressive, tyrannical governments. We look no further than our, our South with, with Venezuela as the, you know, a prime example, which we're, we're going to touch on there based on your experience being, being actually born and raised in Venezuela later on the show. Um, but let's, let's kind of circle back here to, uh, to your book. So it's a uh, 10 myths of gun control. Um, so first and foremost, where can folks go ahead and find this, uh, this ebook if they're looking to uh, to learn what the top 10 myths of gun control actually are and where they can you know, get some true debunking of the uh, the fake news media lies about guns they can find it on my, my website josealino.com in the books tab i can send you a link of that that's the best place to find it um i have it there available for the public to see Okay, awesome. And we'll be sure to include that in the uh, in the link to the show notes. But here, let's go back to um, you discussing the, the ten myths of gun control. So uh, I want people to obviously go and, and check out the book themselves. But let's dig into what you would consider to be, let's say, the top three myths of gun control as it's laid out in your book. So what would you say are, in your opinion, the top three? And then we'll dig into each individual one and kind of do a, a brief summary of your uh, your argument against the myths. I would say um, this myth. It is really more like a combination of myths, but it's a general overview that expanded gun rights somehow leads to chaos and Wild West scenarios, which is not the case. In fact, if you actually look at history, the wild, the so-called wild is actually a lot safer than most of the Hollywood video videos and um, mainstream media would like you to believe. And in fact, what we see in the past 30 years since gun laws have been liberalized at the state level to various degrees, that gun ownership has increased significantly while gun violence has continued to decrease. So the assertion that somehow more guns in the hands of people leads to more crime is not necessarily the case. And we also see another myth that gun rights are racist. You hear the idea that the Second Amendment was somehow created to protect 
southern plantation holders. Whereas you actually look at the history of gun control in the U.S., it's actually the exact opposite. Gun control against minorities has been used since the colonial era and, in fact, continued even in the early days of the Republic because you had a lot of plantation slaveholders that were fearful of seeing a Haitian revolution scenario occur in the U.S. where slaves rose up against their slave masters. And even the Nat Turner Rebellion of the 1830s spurred a lot of states in the Deep South to um, tighten up their gun laws. And then you saw the infamous cases of the Black Codes following Reconstruction, where state governments in the South effectively disarmed free blacks and left them at the mercy of Jim Crow laws and out-of-control lynch mobs from the KKK or other white supremacist groups. Even Asians as well have um, faced really bad forms of gun control during World War II. Many people forget that the Japanese internment carried out by Franklin Delano Roosevelt um, involved the confiscation of firearms from law-abiding Japanese Americans in order to ensure the compliance. And I'd say another myth for like uh, the third and final myth that I'll share is that um, gun-free zones prevent mass shootings. When we look at the occurrence of mass shootings, it's abundantly clear that they take place in gun-free zones, like 98% of them. And we've seen this happen since the 1990s because in 1990, George H.W. Bush signed the Gun-Free School Zones Act, which essentially turned public schools across the nation into soft targets for deranged murderers. And for that reason, you see these type of really horrendous shootings of like dozens of people getting slaughtered with ease every other year. Thankfully, they're, they're actually not very frequent which ties into another point that there is really no mass shooting epidemic in the U.S., but this just goes to show that when you isolate a certain area and have gun control laws in it, specifically ones that completely ban the possession of firearms from law-abiding people in these areas, criminals will, tar- will logically target them because they represent an easy opportunity to rack up a nasty kill count. Right. It, it's um. I was gonna say it's it's even apparent here. Like I live in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, just to be able to see, um, you know the the areas where we're supposed to have more strict gun control, and yet that's exactly where we see more crime, and actually it's more violent crime. Um, so actually seeing people's uh, physical bodies being harmed uh, by you know the gang violence and and the the, the physical crimes like ri- uh, robberies or or, or you know, sexually violent crimes. Um, so you know let's kind of do a, a 180. Because obviously I want to leave. Some of the myths there for people that, that you go ahead and check out in your book. Um, but what would you say if you could give a call to action to folks um, who are maybe not as aware of their gun rights? Um, where can they go and learn more about their gun rights? And what would you say in terms of being in a city? Let's say a city, for example, as my follow up question. Um, what would you say for someone who is facing strict gun control? How can they best act on their rights and still, uh, you know, main work is really work through 
whatever the specific laws are for their, um, either it's their city, their town, and so forth? I would say the first step is to build a solid knowledge foundation. Never put the court, never put the cart before the horse. That means read up on the issues, get my ebook, among other things, but continue <laughs> to read. My ebook is only a foundational piece. I see it as the first step, but you probably want to get immersed on the knowledge and then put it into practice. And the way to do that, I think if you're like in a really anti-gun blue state, I would try to hop on board the tr- the big local trend that is actually starting to become kind of national now of um, petitioning like your county or local municipality to pass um, firearms sanctuary resolutions where they essentially nullify all forms of state gun control and the, the sheriffs in that vicinity um, do not enforce any of the gun control infringements on the books. That's a good way to start. A lot of states like Maryland, Colorado, New Mexico, and even Illinois have started that because I'm a big fan of state um, legislative action. But in a lot of these states that are very anti-gun, it's just very difficult to get a pro-gun majority. And I think that starting at the very local level is a good way to build up a kind of farm team, a base of supporters for much bigger battles. Now, if you're like in a more swing state or even a relatively pro-gun red state, I think that um, lobbying in favor of constitutional carry by finding a solid pro-gun rep in your legislature is really good because constitutional carry, I think, is the hottest uh, gun rights policy issue that you will find at the, at the state level. And it raises good money. It gets good people elected. And it's good policy. Jose, really quick, what would you, if you could, for folks who aren't aware of what constitutional carry is, could you give a little bit more insight into that? Yeah, constitutional carry is a simple concept that any law-abiding individual can carry a firearm without having to beg the government for permission. It's essentially the Second Amendment, but actually put into practice and respected. Sixteen states have it right now. States from Arizona all the way up to South Dakota have it. And Many other states like in the deep south are, are considering legislation like that. I think by 2022, we'll probably have at least 20 states that have constitutional carry. It's an issue with a lot of momentum. It's a great way for libertarians to position themselves well at the state level. Gotcha. Awesome. And other things too people can do is, is you know, get involved in your local communities like you had mentioned earlier. Um, so, for example, here in Philadelphia, Maj Tory with Black Guns Matter. Uh, you know, we're, I'm, I know, I'm excited to have him on my show here at the uh, the end of the year. Great guy. Yeah, yeah he, he's, you know, he's putting our, our policies and our principles into action. And he's actually living uh, what he preaches. So God bless him. He's doing exactly what we need to do. And that's, you know, getting our message out there by showing the value of the, the, the principle. And really, in this case, it's being able to defend yourself. So, um, so yes, the, the, the book, again, it's the 10 myths of gun control. And we'll be sure to include the link. Uh, for you folks to check that out. But the last thing I want to talk about here today with uh, with Jose focuses uh, back towards the topic of Venezuela. So um, for those of you who are, are listeners of The Brian Nichols Show, you're probably familiar with my interview I had with Hillary Andaluz Aguilar back uh, towards the beginning of the year. 
And uh, she's obviously born and raised in Venezuela. Watched the rise and fall, if you will, of the Venezuelan dream with the Hugo Chavez socialist promise that then was uh, destroyed under the uh, Nicolas Maduro. But we, we learned that it wasn't a matter of it being destroyed because of Nicolas Maduro. It's because it's actually, you know, what was going to be happening because of the socialist policies. Now, in response to that, it obviously looks like there's a crazy human crisis down in, in Venezuela and that, you know, people are saying we need to do something to help these people. So one of the main uh, proponents uh, to, to be the, the solution has been that of trying to have us get involved in terms of military action, which as libertarians, we, we say, well, time out. No, 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 we, we, we should not do that. Uh, you know, we, we need to really consider what's going on down there. And I, I want to talk to you, Jose, because you being born in Venezuela, and I assume you'd want us to maybe do something. But it sounds from our conversation before we started airing is that you actually are saying, no, we, we should not uh, get involved in, in the Venezuelan conflict. Yes, um, I think that to understand the overall Venezuelan context, we have to look at its past like 50 years of history, I think. I've written about this at Mises Institute, and this leads into why we should not intervene. Um, the common narrative you see and hear about in the media is all about Hugo Chavez and Nicolás Maduro. And while that's correct, it misses a really larger point. The past 50 years of Venezuelan history has been filled with socialism of some degree or the other. You, um, from 1970 up until 2000, the country was social democratic in nature. It had a bipartisan political system that really saw two parties that did not defer much in terms of policies. And with the oil nationalization in the 1970s, uh, Venezuela went from a country that was about to reach the first world to a stagnating economy. And many people don't realize this. In the year of 1998, the year that Hugo Chavez was elected, the average Venezuelan was poor than the average Venezuelan in 1958 on a per capita GDP basis. And another really interesting point that many people don't realize, Venezuelan millennials have moved ever seen a single digit rate of inflation in their lifetime. Wow. And the last time that Venezuela had single digit inflation was 1983. So what we see here is that Venezuela's problems are very structural in nature and have been around for decades. And even in, even in the current day, the Venezuelan opposition we all know the current government is completely tyrannical. It's a tyrannical permutation of socialism. But the current um, opposition is not very, very capitalistic. In fact, you have numerous members of that opposition, especially parties like um, Popular Will, Voluntad Popular, um, members of the Socialist International. So in essence, if you support a military intervention there or some type of aid, you are abetting um, socialists or social democrats of one uh, one sort or the other. But apart from that, I think a military intervention there would create numerous second and third order effects there that like a refugee crisis that will inevitably wash up to our shores. It'll totally destabilize the country and I think may actually fuel the rise of 
Marxist variants, not just in Venezuela, but throughout rest of Latin America, which is a region that is very susceptible to socialism because of that, because they now have a scapegoat. My take on Venezuela is that um, I think a more reasonable alternative, which I wrote for it in the Mises Institute, is to is for the country to secede on a voluntary basis because there are certain segments of Venezuelan society that are culturally different from the central region of Venezuela and Caracas, like um, like the western states of Táchira and Zulia. And I think that those states um, can focus more on secessionist movements to separate um, Venezuela into a more capitalist Venezuela and the more socialist Venezuela under um, Caracas's orbit. But I think that um, military intervention um, brings too much. And the U.S. is overstretched anyways with hundreds of bases overseas in the current Middle Eastern conflicts that I, I think a military intervention would just be too much of a sacrifice in terms of blood and treasure for the U.S. and could catalyze a fit collapse for it. So in essence, I think the U.S. should should stay out of Venezuela. Part of national sovereignty is the right to fail as nations. Yes, it is sad that my homeland is in terrible shape. But countries have failed like for thousands of years and they eventually recuperate. But I think is too much at this point. So then the question obviously gets raised because there's the humanitarian uh, toll that's being taken place right now. People eating zoo animals, uh, you know, waiting in lines for, for weeks just to get food. Uh, you know, I was talking to Hillary. She was mentioning how you know, basic necessities like you know medications, they, they can't be found in the country. So there, there's a real humanitarian crisis that's happening in Venezuela, then if, if the solution is not intervention to help those individuals, what do you say as, uh, or what do you see rather as the means to be able to help those people that are in need right now, um, you know, who, who have no food, who are you know, being shot in the street for protesting? What's as the libertarian answer to that question that's raised? I, uh, I would also argue that Private security and private military organizations um, should be allowed to operate there. Um, if Venezuelans want to contract with them, do so without relying on government aid or intervention. They have every right to do that. And I would also say like that, yes, Americans should donate and try to help out as much as possible through private aid. That being said, the Venezuelan government is pretty hostile towards that. But um, I just don't see at this point um, any justification really for a military intervention from a government. I, I, I Well, at least the U.S. government. Um, Colombia and Brazil, um, I actually think they have more of a legitimate national security concern there because they are literally facing – the refugee crisis firsthand. And in the case of Colombia, um, the Venezuelan government has financed a lot of Marxist guerrillas like the armed revolutionary forces of Colombia, the FARC. And I think that is a justification for them to take some form of military action. I just don't think the U.S. should be involved in that um, case. But in some, I think that's more of Colombia's and Brazil's uh, problem and or 
something for private secu- uh, security firms to handle. There are lots of military con- contractors out there, and I think that many Venezuelans, especially the wealthy uh, ones, can contract with those people and find a kind of solution such as secession or some type of arrangement where they are able to protect their citizens from the government and from its absolute failure of protecting it from the criminals that pretty much control the streets of present-day Venezuela. See, the reason I ask that is because the the number one response libertarians will get when it comes to discussing foreign policy intervention issues is, you know, oh, so, you know, if, if uh, libertarians were in charge in World War II, that Hitler uh, would never have been stopped, and, you know, the, the Holocaust would have continued. And then that, that same argument's used nowadays with Venezuela, saying, you know, if, if libertarians were in charge, then all these people would starve and they would, you know, be executed in the streets. So I think that that's that's one of the main um, you know the main critiques that libertarians get. I, I would I would dare say a lot of libertarians don't know how to articulate a response to that when they're when they're faced with that that challenge. Well, I mean, with World War II, the U.S. was attacked by Japan, so it responded properly. Um, that being said, when we look at military conflicts in the 20th century, um, the U.S.'s entrance into World War One. Um, was a pretty devastating event that in many ways led to the rise of Hitler. And I think that was a war that the U.S. should have never been involved with. And that eventually these wars are going to um, end up destroying the U.S. fiscally. And let's face it, it is a cold, harsh reality that um, in human history, there has been tons of starvation, tons of civil wars tons of conflict and even genocide but when you can't save everyone like a country's government can't save everyone you can have private entities take it up and pick up the slack and if we look at the 21st century it's been a relatively peaceful century with very few exceptions so i think that um as a whole humanity and mankind has advanced to the point where Wars are becoming more of an anomaly rather than a norm. And um, I think with Venezuela, it's a good educational experience that socialism is a very destructive system and that people should um, learn that it is a civilization destroyer. But I don't think necessarily that it, um, it merits a kind of intervention. If you look at Eastern Europe, especially the Baltic Tigers, like Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, or even Poland for that matter, um, they were all able to peacefully break apart from the Soviet Union without foreign intervention. And the Soviet Union was the mo- arguably the most tyrannical government in human history. So people will find a way to break away from tyrannical governments, regardless if like the um, uh, foreign government intervenes or not. There was a a funny little snarky subtweet, um, not a subtweet, a quote tweet, excuse me, from uh, Michael Malice back. I forgot what the, the context was, but it was uh, the uh, the conservative page, the Reagan Battalion. They said if libertarians had been in charge during World War II, Hitler would have won. And then he quote tweeted. He said uh, if libertarians had been in charge in, in World War One, then Hitler would have been irrelevant in the first place. And uh, I mean that right there, I think pretty much sums up the uh, the libertarian answer to what the uh, you know the, the true alternative to a common sense foreign policy would be so uh anyways with that jose thank you so much for uh, for joining us today and uh definitely what we'll do uh, folks is include the link to uh, his book the 10 myths 
of gun control so you can go ahead and make sure you have that on hand because I know we all have one or two or several friends who are always on board with a gun control argument. You have this at your disposal to dispel those myths. Um, so be sure again to share today's episode with those family and friend members who they question, how dare they question uh, the, uh, the the Second Amendment rights that we have here, right? Uh, so make sure you, you share this with them so they can go ahead and uh, you know learn to err the, uh, the errors of their ways. Uh, and also be sure to go ahead and uh, follow Jose online. So Jose, where can folks go ahead and find you uh, on social media so they can uh, you know, follow the works that you're going to be doing and all the publications you uh, you write for? You can follow me on Mises.org. Uh, I just sent you a link to that for my writings. I'm on Twitter as well, at Jose Al Nino. I'm also on Facebook, at Jose Nino. If you look me up on my Facebook page, I share all my stuff there and my articles. I'm also sharing a lot of content as well on my um, email list, which I email almost daily. I email at least three to four times a week. It's at josealnino.com forward slash newsletter forward slash. Awesome. All right. Well, listen, folks, if you enjoyed, again, today's episode, share with family and friends. As always, please swing over and uh, follow me on social media at Liberty both on Twitter and on Facebook. And uh, be sure, again, share today's episode with family and friends. If you could, go and rate a review for The Brian Nichols Show over on iTunes. And uh, as always, folks, if you're interested in helping us uh, financially support The Brian Nichols Show, uh, you can do that for a one-time PayPal donation at Show at gmail.com. Or you can go ahead and uh, become a patron over on Patreon. Again, it's the Nichols Liberty uh, over there. So with that, folks, thank you so much for joining us today on another fun-filled episode of The uh, Brian Nichols Show for uh, Jose Nino signing off. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to The Brian Nichols Show. Find more episodes at briannicholsshow.com.